January 13, 2013. How about that, huh? Lecture discussion number 94 on the Book of Romans. Um, and uh, yes, that number 94 is correct. This is the 94th uh, lecture in the Romans series, the last one being 93rd. That makes sense. So the 93rd uh, was on December the 16th, 2012. Uh, we've been hiding in the interim. Uh, we did our our Christmas, uh, um, I'm sorry, our Christmas, yeah, our Christmas Eve Eve, uh, but uh, we have had no Romans lectures since December 16th. So those of you following on the internet, uh, we've had an intermission. Uh, I've been talking to the folks here before, but I'll bring everybody on the internet up to speed as much as I can. It's been necessary for Lori and I to address the challenges of my late mother's estate, more specifically her house. Um, which is in need of great repair, to state the obvious. So we've been battling uh, that monstrous uh, alligator slash crocodile the last few, few Sundays. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, many more days are required, uh, though uh, I do have it structurally stable. The structural repair is now accomplished, uh, about accomplished, mostly accomplished. Uh, Im- imminent collapse is no longer probable except for the decks. If you visit my mother's house, stay off the decks. <laughs> I can push my fingers through the 4x12s holding that thing up. Just stick my finger right through it. It's mush, absolute mush. And the other day, uh, uh, Susie had uh, Steve and Talia's son and daughter shoveling the snow off of it, and I said to uh, as gently and as quietly as you can, would you bring them inside? They're almost done. Whatever you do, I pray that a bird doesn't land on that deck while they're shoveling it. It's coming down. And by the way, if it does come down, what do we call that? Yeah, insurance settlement. That's right. <laughs> now I'm in trouble, aren't I? Uh, but uh, anyway, the, the decks are shot completely. They can't support anybody's weight. I was out there with Lindsay Bell the other day. And she ran back into the house screaming. So, so, but mostly the in, the, the house itself is now structurally sound and, um, and, uh, it's no longer going to fall down, at least the downstairs. Uh, but, uh, and also, uh, we've uh, solved the electrical, uh, issues. The, the, the frequent fires are not occurring anymore. Though things will turn on and come off based on earthquakes. And so, uh, that lets you know that I have, uh, all kinds of uh, problems, uh, but uh, we'll hunt them all down. That electricity does not scare me. The biggest thing is, is that it's no longer flooding from every toilet, or sink, or dishwasher, or whatever, or outside. You know, that's stopped too. So, but what I got left is uh, the simple stuff now, and I just got doors, windows, decks, the roof, the cabinets, the countertops, the flooring, the painting, the finish, the tile, the electrical fixtures, the plumbing fixtures. Um, uh, and the sheetrock. That's all I got. Okay. <laughs> a little bit of, little bit of plywood. Uh, exterior doors. I gotta reframe the exterior so I get doors in there. Uh, that's it. So the good news is that, uh, Lori and I are able and we're expert in all of these. Lori will not say so, but she's much more than you would imagine. And we also possess, uh, the applicable tools and equipment to do it all. That's the good news. I own so many nail guns now, it's scary. I could start a rental agency. The bad news is that Lori and I are experts and we possess all the applicable tools in all the nail guns. That's the bad news. Sometimes it's just better to be unable to fight. 
when I was at the railroad as a young man, there's a great big mural of a spider in there. And I never forgot it. Great big, huge spider that must have been maybe three or four feet. Some guy had done a wonderful job of drawing it on the walls in the, uh, in one of the, uh, little offices that were down there. And it said underneath in beautiful print, it said, uh, you can run, but why die tired? And so, I've never forgotten that. And that is, that's pretty much the predicament that Lori and I find ourselves in, sorry to say. <laughs> in any event, those are the reasons for this gap, for those of you on the Internet, uh, between lectures 93 and 94. And it's uh, necessary, because of that gap, to refresh the and recap for the locals here. My apologies to the Interneters for that delay. Not really, as you know. That's a, a not a legitimate, sincere apology. Some would say fake. Okay, so where are we? We last left off at the order of Genesis 3, 20 through 24. That's what this is. This is the order and this amazing, absolute, precise order that is there in Genesis 3, 20 through 24. Uh, there on the board. And we'll get to it in a minute. There is an interdependency between each item. I've, I've labeled them, obviously, 1 through 10. But there is an interdependency or a cause and effect. In other words, the behold is related to the slain animals, which is related to the renaming, and they are in a precise order. And, and you look at them and say almost to yourself, if you wish, inside of time, human-based, that this caused this caused this caused this caused this. There's an order to it. Understanding that order is very important to understanding uh, why those items are there. So an interdependency of the renaming of the woman to Eve uh, then causes, if you will, the slaying of the animals and the replacing of the fig coverings and the blood of the innocents uh, being put uh, instead of the fig coverings. People ask me all the time, why did he kill animals? He killed animals because Adam renamed the woman life. So they asked me then, would you mean to say to me that he wouldn't have? Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but that's how I want you to think of it. Cause and effect. After the slain animal coverings comes the great behold of Genesis 3, 20 through 24. The great behold that is behold. Now, when he says that, of course, you now know something unbelievable that you will not understand the first 50 times you read it is coming. Behold, the man has become like. Wow, put that on the board. Like, behold, the man has become... Who's missing in that sentence? The woman. Why isn't he saying this about the woman? Because apparently it isn't true for the woman. Behold, the man has become like one of us. I'll say it again because I say it in a way very different from most people who preach on this. Okay, from everybody who preaches on it. I'm weird. Were you weird before you came to Cliffside, or did Cliffside make you weird? The answer to that is you were weird before you came to Cliffside. You cannot sue us. We've already won. 
There's nothing you can... Behold, the man has become... What's the obvious question besides the woman's missing? When did the man become? Where exactly in the story of Genesis 3 did... Where is the precise minute time? Where can you find? Where do you go? This is where the man became like one of us. Where do you think? When did the man become like one of us? I'm going to tell you. Right there, baby. When he renamed the woman life. Okay? You can argue with me. Some do. Read it again. Behold, the man has become like one of us, causing the most obvious of the obvious questions. Which one of the triune Godhead has Adam become like? How many choices you got? Pick one. Okay. And now, what exactly does this word mean? Like. It's probably the most used word today in the English language, right? What exactly does it mean in the context of Genesis 3? And you have to go to Ezekiel 1.26, Philippians 2.7, Romans 8.3, Exodus 24.10. Those are some of the necessary... Let me repeat those. Ezekiel 1.26... Philippians 2.7, Romans 8.3, Exodus 24.10. you got to go to those. Those are necessary in order to unravel the meaning of like, but more than anything else, to unravel the mystery, the first of the 11 mysteries. You've got 11 mysteries that you and I, all of us, are going to be held accountable for. God, when he sees you, is going to give you a piece of paper. He's going to say, write down everything you know about the 11 mysteries. And actually, it's going to be worse than that. He's going to say to you, I know everyone to whom you told the 11 mysteries to. Because we are held accountable of the mysteries. And whether or not we learned them and whether or not we taught them to others. So those four passages that I gave you along with this in Genesis, the great behold, those four, those passages, those are just some of them that are required to unravel the first mystery, the mystery of godliness, which is 1 Timothy 3.16, or if you will, the definition of like or likeness or the mystery of likeness. But it is really the mystery of God becoming man or God being like man. That's the first mystery. That is the, that's, those are so important to understand. Now, one of the little mini obvious ones here, not the most obvious, mini obvious, M-I-N-I. How is it that Adam is like one of the us? Hear how I said it that time? How is it that Adam is like one of the us? He obviously isn't the same as one of the us, but he is like one of the us. How is it that he is like? In what way is he like one of the us? And then the the most important. Why is Adam like one of the us? Not just how, but why. And then immediately we got to ask the inverse, don't we? 
uh, which is far more important than any of the many obvious, or those two many obvious. How is it that Christ is like a man? Why is it that Christ is in the likeness of man? Again, Philippians 2.7, Ezekiel 1.26, Romans 8.3, Exodus 24.10. Why does he do this? What is or what are the true meanings of this likeness of a man and of this likeness of one of us? Adam clearly is a type of Christ. Romans 5, 12 through 14 tells us that Adam is a type. So we can figure out where the limits of that typology are for Adam pretty much. But it cannot be said that Jesus Christ is a type of anything. He is not a type. He is the type, or the anti-type it's called. He is the fulfillment of the type. He is not a type of anything, much less a type of anyone. So how do we explain Christ in the likeness of man? Okay, we also left off with the purpose or the question of this precise order that I mentioned in the beginning of the lecture here. Um, why does the slaying of the animals follow immediately the renaming of the woman? She is called the woman originally, and then she is renamed, renamed, sorry, Eve which means life or living, the mother of the mother of life or the mother of the living. She is renamed that, and as soon as she is, then it is appropriate for God to slay the animals, pull the fig leaves off, and cover Adam and the woman now renamed Eve with the blood of the innocent animals. If you wish, think then and only then. Renaming of the woman comes after the sentencing of their trial. After Adam is sentenced, he does this amazing, incredible thing, and he renames the woman the mother of life or the mother of the living. And after, then and only then, does the judge slay the animals. Does that make sense? And cover him with blood. So why and how? Is it obvious? I think it is obvious, is it not? I hope that if Adam had renamed the woman the mother of the dead, then if you want to think of it this way inside of time from a human-based perspective that is not at all doctrinally correct, this is a caveat or this is a disclaimer so that I cannot be sued. Yes, sir, go ahead. Yeah, something that, there's no question about that. What David said for the people on the internet is that Adam said something that was salvation relevant or connected. This renaming of the woman is an expression of a belief that he has. And that is why the blood. But again, my disclaimer. It's obvious from a human-based perspective, you can't, if you take it inside of time, I hope you get all of that. If Adam, the hypothetical that can't be granted because God is outside of time, there's no possibility being omniscient that he can do anything but the one thing that is done. But, just for fun, if you think this is fun, if you think this is fun, oh my goodness, <laughs> I, no wonder you're lonely. 
I, I think it's fun. And I, I mourn for you. Okay. If Adam had renamed the woman the mother of the dead, which is the opposite of the mother of the living, could he have done it? Does he have free will? Could he have accomplished that? Could he have said, I am renaming this woman who was deceived and did all this stuff that caused all these problems? I'm going to call her dumb woman of the dead. Okay, or mother of the dead, just to be the opposite. Would the removing of the fig coverings or the fig garments have occurred? No, it's an if-then, it is a consequence, then and only then. That's a hypothetical that helps you sometimes figure things out if you do it that way. But understand that uh, you're inside of time and a human being. If it is not obvious that that those are related correctly or by that way, I hope to do a better job of making it obvious, but at least everyone who reads Genesis 3 should be aware of this amazing sequence here. The mother, I'm sorry, the renaming of, of the woman, renaming the woman mother of the life or mother of the living, causing the slain of the animals and the figs being removed and the blood and the skins being put over them. And then after that's accomplished, the great behold, where it is declared by God that Adam has become like one of us. Think of it almost like a ceremony, if you will. Adam's sentencing is over. He's standing there. He's heard his sentence. And he goes, I'm renaming her the mother of life, the mother of the life, the mother of the living. God brings two of his animals. By the way, animals that Adam had also done what to? Name. And they are slain. And their blood covers Adam and the, and the woman now called Eve. And then these amazing garments are made. How good of a tailor do you think God is? These garments are made. These coverings are made. We get a, we get a picture of him, by the way, with Joseph. That, that garment of Joseph is a long-sleeved coat. It is not a multicolored. Don't, don't get your doctrine from Hollywood. It's a long-sleeved coat of honor, by the way. Um, and so we see a long-sleeved coat of honor being given to Adam and Eve. Uh, probably with uh, 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 something to cover their heads as well. Uh, how do we know about those garments? Well, we can... We can find them. They're in the Bible. We can chase them from person to person to person. I will give you the name of one person who has them at some point. And of course, he was murdered. And he was murdered by Esau. That's right. For those of you on the internet, Nimrod is murdered by Esau for the purpose of Esau getting those garments. That is what that red, or that is, I'm sorry, that is what that soup story is all about. That soup story where would you give me your birthright if I give you the soup? That is all about the murder of Nimrod by Esau and those garments. Okay? When did I, when did I do that, Bill? Fifteen years ago? Long time ago. By the way, uh, uh, Joshua hunts those garments down. It's a wonderful story. I wish we had time. 
a lot more interesting than what I'm doing. But I've done it before, and I don't want to bore Bill and Bonnie anymore. They're the <laughs> But anyway, that order, the renaming of the woman, the slain animals, the behold is declared after these two happen. Then, unless he reach out his hand and take up, got to protect him. I've covered him, right? I've given him what? What did Dave say? Salvation. Now I've got to protect that salvation. Because if I don't, what is this, by the way? Number four. What is number four? Eternal security. Once again, in the chapter of Genesis 3, right in the beginning, the first sinners, God declares them saved, and then He declares them protected. How does He protect them? Yeah, He puts Himself in front of the possibility, doesn't He? Not only does He give you salvation, but He duct tapes it to you. Super glue. Then He guards you. It's right there. Lest they take from the tree of life and live forever in sin, he drives them out, protects them east, okay, and the cherubims and the Shekinah glory. There's that precise order of Genesis 3, 20 through 24. It's so important to you. So much doctrine is there. Okay, uh, on a side note, how many of you ever heard a preacher, and I'm sure you all have because you've all gone to church your whole lives, and if you haven't, and you're not as holy as the person pretending to be holy next to you. <laughs> Dave always says to me, I really like it when you're tired because you're funnier. I hope he's right. That remains to be seen. How many of you have heard a preacher declare Genesis 3.22 a bad thing? That's the great behold. In other words, the preacher will say to you, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good from evil. That's terrible. God is condemning Adam there. How many of you have heard that? Yeah, that's very common. That's I've always been puzzled by that. It doesn't fit to me. Because when I read that in my ignorance, which was yesterday, okay, when I was young, I assumed immediately being like one of the us Knowing good from evil was a good thing. I wanted to be like one of the us, and I wanted to know good from evil. Why isn't that a good thing? Why would you assume when you read it it's bad? I saw it as a statement of favor. I saw it as a statement that Adam had accomplished something. It was a declaration. It followed a behold. Beholds are cool. That's how I thought. Adam had responded well. He had become like one of the us. He's a type of Christ. This has got to be good. How, how come so many people say it's bad for Adam? Adam got a new coat. He's got blood and a covering of the innocent over him. Is that good? That's good. He's being protected. Why isn't the behold a good thing? Adam, I, I thought, responded well. And I saw it as more evidence that Adam was never deceived in all of this. Because God has said the same to him, you have become like one of the us. Now, some may object to me because I substitute the word from for the word and. Let me read it again. Behold... 
The man has become like one of us to know good from evil. He can tell the difference between good and evil. In other words, instead of good and evil, good from evil. But again, as a youth, I also assume that from the context, it was good from evil. It was distinguishing, knowing the difference, knowing there was a difference. Let me repeat that, knowing that there was a difference. How does one know the difference? How does one know the definition of what is good? By the way, if you define good, what have you automatically done? You've defined evil. See, now you've accomplished the definition of evil. And some disagree with me, as you know, and it's shocking, and then I can hear you all gasp, and, and you're flailing around and gnashing and going, wow, how can anybody disagree with him? Uh, I did get a wonderful man call me from Pennsylvania. I'll throw this into the story. Uh, I, I can't remember his name. He called me on the phone, talked to me for a half an hour. He, uh, former military and he has a website, and he wanted to let me know he had put Cliffside uh, uh, on the website, and as because uh, he he really battles with the uh, the evolutionary monists. That's his thing in life, and, and bless him for that. He wants to deal with that, and uh, he said uh, they don't uh, they don't give you much credit. They don't argue with what you say, but they dismiss you because you do not have the uh, academic credentials. And I said, that's true. They, they call me just some little tiny pastor in little tiny Alaska. Both of that is wrong. I'm not so tiny. And Alaska is not so tiny. Church is tiny. But anyway, I'm not a man of renown. So there is no penalty to disagree with me. Shocking though that may seem. But uh, all you have to really do is look up the, the passages, I'll give you two of them. Deuteronomy 139, Matthew 711. Those are your knowing good from evil passages. Start with those two. 139, Deuteronomy 711, Matthew. And uh, I think you'll agree that, uh, that it, the from is the better position. Anyway, I spent, I submit that knowing the difference between good and evil is the more correct meaning here. And that implies, by the way, as you know, the ability to know the difference between evil and good tells you that you exist. Existence is implied here, and free will is implied, because existence and free will are not separable. You do not have existence if you do not have free will, and free will is obviously the knowing the difference between good and evil, or good from evil. But irrespective of all of that, it still seems to me that knowing what is good and knowing what is evil is of great value. So the fact that Adam is declared by God to know, he knows the difference between good and evil. That's amazing. He's, who declares him that way? God singles him out after he pours blood on him and he says to everybody who's listening, who's listening to that? Who do you think heard God say this about Adam? I want to ask the obvious question. When God said, that man knows the difference between good and evil. How many people listening? All the angelic hosts listening to that. Who else is listening to that and going, how come I didn't get that? That's right, I got the cool name. I'm the mother of the life, but it does not say about me that I know the difference, says it about Adam. 
I want to know, by the way, of everybody listening, has anyone else got that said about them? And they know the difference between good and evil. How much capacity intellectually does it take to know the difference between good and evil? How many of us know the difference between good and evil? Okay, let me submit that this may not be good for me. I don't know if it is or not. It may be good. It may be evil. Ah, It does taste good to me. I can tell you for sure that we are no match for Satan. He fools us all. He fools us all. Consistently, we fall victim to his system. He doesn't bother you individually. He's busy. We're little idiot ants, but we all run into his traps. We all do. We don't know the difference, but Adam, it is said that he does. That is a powerful, powerful testimony for this man, Adam. What was he really like? Okay, and how many of those angels was this ever said about? And how many of the angels knew the difference? You might add the condition that knowing what is righteous is not enough. Just knowing is not enough. Obedience to what is righteous and belief in righteousness or goodness must be involved. And all I would say to you is that you are probably just merely fully defining the word knowing in that case. But that's for later uh, topic. I can't go along that path today. However, we can at least agree that being a type of the one of us is a good attribute. Can we not? He is called like one of the us. Okay? And that's good. And as, uh, as you can imagine, I have had a lot of mail, as I told you in the announcements, and I have one of them to go through today, a couple of them actually. Uh, it's, all of it is about Genesis 3 and Romans 12, though some of the people who wrote me may not have known that they are referencing uh, Romans 5.12 and Genesis 3. Did I say 5.12? I hope I did. But they were, um, whether they knew it or not, and uh, their preferences have not been considered if they thought it was about something else. Okay, so we're going to take a look at it. Probably first up in the mail category today is some unfinished business um, um, that we have to get to. I'm going to try to finish this topic as we go along. Uh, Janet from Oklahoma, you may have remembered when she wrote a while back asking about blood. She sent me a copy of Dr. Henry uh, Morris's uh, monograph on the virgin birth, and I have it, and um, I, I've marked this one up that she sent me, um, and I really appreciate that she did it uh, because it gave me a chance to mark it all up, and, and then I didn't have to bring the book. But, uh, um, but Henry Morris has a position on the virgin birth that is really interesting. Uh, do, who remembers uh, Kathy in the front row? Hi, Kathy. She's now down in uh, California. Um, and we miss her a great deal. But um, she used to ask me about Henry Morris's position all the time over the last three or four years, I think, uh, if I can remember correctly. But, um, uh, well, let me just say this. As you know, Henry Morris was a giant is a giant. He still exists. Among theologians, I believe I have every single thing he wrote. 
and rarely does a Sunday lecture of mine not contain something that Dr. Morris considered. I read him all the time. If I find myself disagreeing with him, I panic. He's one of those guys. Okay? And so I'm always cross-checking against what Dr. Morris thought. And any discussion on Genesis, you've got to start with Henry Morris. That's where you start. And I've got all his Genesis. I used to have tapes of him, videotapes, but I can't find them anymore, of him lecturing. And I was very, very uh, proud of those in, in, my, in my little collection, and I've lost them. Um, but, <clears throat> but here's a, a, a time where I don't think uh, Dr. Morris's position on the virgin birth is able to withstand examination. I don't think it's good enough. Bless his heart, he's now agreeing with me. That's a joke. He passed away about, what, a year or so ago? And the first thing he learned when he got there is Chronister was right. No, I'm, I'm absolutely... Please, I'm glad you laughed. Uh, anyway. <laughs> what I have done, once I read Dr. Morris's view, of course, I went out and found uh, uh, contradicting views. Uh, the one I mentioned the most is M.R. DeHaan, Bill... Uh, mentioned uh, Arthur C. Custance. Both of them are very similar. And I, I looked at theirs, especially DeHaan's at the time, um, and I looked at Dr. Morris's, and I gravitated towards uh, M.R. DeHaan. I'll try to explain why. Uh, Henry Morris has the no genetic inheritance view, is pretty much what it's called. Um, I appreciate that he has this view, because what he's trying to do is he's fighting against people who have uh, taken, stripped the deity from Christ. And so he is, Christ is God, and he is not contaminated with sin. Stop it. That's what he was doing. So I appreciate all of that. Uh, I'm going to read some of it, and, and um, we'll do the best we can um, to get through this. It's very important. Uh, and it is right right here. It's Romans 5.12, and it's Genesis 3. Here's what he says, and I'm, I'm reading it now. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is such an important doctrine of the New Testament that without it there can be no true Christianity. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. But how can the one who was God, John 1, 2, from the beginning be the same one who was made flesh and dwelt among us? How can he truly be Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us? How can the infinite, eternal God become the finite and temporal? Such a concept seems impossibly paradoxical, yet millions quite properly believe it, is to, be, believe it to be a real and vital truth. Okay. Uh, Stop right there. There's problems with that sentence. I'll get back to it in a minute. The paradox is partially resolved. Whoops. Of course, when it is realized that Jesus Christ... Uh, well, no, I skipped a, sentence, a paragraph, sorry. Perhaps the most amazing aspect of the incarnation is that a God who is absolute holiness could reside in a body of human flesh. It, is it not true that they, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God? Romans 8.8. 8. 
Our human bodies have been formed through many generations of genetic inheritance from Adam himself, and in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15.22. The paradox is partially resolved, of course, when it is realized that Jesus Christ came in a body which was not of sinful flesh. His body was truly in the flesh, but only in the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans 8.3. Why defining the word like becomes very important. But I'll read again. But even this doesn't resolve the dilemma completely for how could his body be of flesh, carbon, hydrogen, amino acids, proteins, received by the normal processes of reproduction of the flesh of his parents without also receiving their genetic inheritance, which is exactly what makes it sinful flesh. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51.5. There's a mistake in that. In my view. I'll continue reading. Man that is born of a woman is a few, is a few days and full of trouble. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Job 14.4. Okay? Now, I'll just deal with this really fast. He said this again, how can the infinite, eternal God become finite and temporal? The answer is, the infinite, eternal God did not become finite and temporal. So, if you have a position that says that God became finite, well, you've begun in a bad spot. Dr. Morris did so. And the fact that millions believe that God did become finite and temporal does not make it so. Is he right, by the way, that millions believe that God became finite and temporal and sinful? Yes, he is. Millions do believe that. And it is blasphemy. It is heresy. It is a god-awful evil thing from the pit of hell. Okay? Beginning with this mistaken premise is a, a, a great concern. Let me keep reading some more. He did not become finite and temporal. So what did he become? Dr. Morris again. I'll I'll read again. Without such a miraculous birth, there could have been no true incarnation and therefore no salvation. That's absolutely true. The man Jesus would have been a sinner by birth and thus in need of a Savior himself. Absolutely true. I have got to have a birth process by which Jesus Christ has no sin in him. That's absolutely true. Dr. Morris is assuming that there is no possibility that that can be accomplished. That the birth process requires sin transference. And he goes on to say, on second thought, however, one realizes that it was not the virgin birth which was significant except as a testimony of the necessity of the real miracle. In other words, he's saying the virgin birth, the purpose of the virgin birth is not to avoid sin transference, but is to be a testimony that something miraculous has happened. Okay? The supernatural has happened here. A conception that happened that was solely and completely uh, separate from humanity in all regard. I hope you're asking some obvious questions there. Like, why? 
Why would I why would I go through this facade of a birth system if I'm not using any part of the birth system? What's the purpose? Do I not have John the Baptist leaping at Jesus? Why? If it has no value and no significance. Anyway. The birth of Christ was natural and normal in every way, including the full period of human gestation in the womb of Mary. In all points, he was made like his brethren, experiencing. Oops. God does not experience. He's infinite omniscient. Omniscience and experiencing are contradictory. Experiencing every aspect of human life from conception through birth and growth to death, he was true man in every detail except for sin and its physical attribute. The miracle was not his birth, Dr. Morris says, but his conception. And here we face a mystery. Conception normally is the result of the union of two germ cells, the egg from the mother and the seed from the father, each carrying half the inheritance and thus each, of course, sharing equally in the transmission of the sin nature as well as other aspects of the human nature. So he is saying that both the mother and the father transfer sin. As you know, Mr. DeHaan's position is no. Mr. Custance, his position, no. Sin transference comes where? From the man. As exactly said where? Romans 5.12. Okay, then he goes on to say other things that are, uh, that are you know, he... he talks about people that equate this to artificial insemination and you and you know there are some animals in the uh in the uh, creation that are able to uh, give birth individually in other words without a, a male um, they are just able it's a, some reptiles some other uh animals have the ability to do that okay so they don't require a mate <coughs> necessarily okay why the assumption from Mr. Morris that the transmission of the sin nature is shared equally between the father and the mother? Why does he assume that? How, based on what? As I, as I said, this is a direct contradiction to Romans 5.12 and Genesis 3.14-24. through 24. Through the one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. It does not say that sin and or through the one man partially and the other woman uh, halfways, the, the sin entered. It says, through the one man sin entered the world, and death spread through sin, and thus death spread to all. And Adam called his wife's name the mother of the living, or the mother of the life, because she was the mother of all living. And Dr. Morris makes the case that Christ's human body requires no contamination. By the way, is he right about that? Yes, absolutely right. I cannot have any contamination in Christ. If you have a position that Christ is afraid of something or doesn't know something, you have contaminated him. And as soon as you have, we have no salvation. So you can't do that. So Dr. Moore is absolutely correct. No contamination of any kind from any atoms or molecules that previously exist. That's his view. In other words, everything is contaminated. And so Christ cannot have his body made up of any molecule or atom of any kind that currently exists because all particles are unavailable and off limits because all particles are what? Contaminated. Every single one. Okay, if that's true, 
then how do I accomplish the nutrient aspect of the infant development? Because he told me here, Dr. Morrison, that, uh, that the, the process was exactly the same because he needed to experience it, which just can't be true. I can't find it off the top of my head. Oh, the body growing in Mary's womb. Okay, Placed there by the Holy Spirit. Nurtured in the womb for nine months. All of that was the same. Well, what's nurture? Providing nutrients. Are the nutrients particles? Are they atoms and molecules? Where did Mary get them? Probably ate a fish. Right? What happened to those fish? Pieces of bread. What happened to them? They were converted by her body's natural processes into what? Food for who? And how did it transfer to the infant that was growing inside of her normally? And what did that infant do with that material? So how does, do I accomplish the nutrient aspect of the infant development? If the mother equally shares in the transmission of sin, then there would seem to be no possibility of any contact with the mother in order to avoid com- contamination. If, I, if my goal is to avoid contact with the mother, why would I go through the process of being an infant and a mother for nine months? Having the waste removal of the placenta and the nutrient aspect of it. Why would I do that? Plus she could fall down. You know, really, if you're going to be a pregnant woman, it might be a great idea to have God be there. Probably you're going to be fine. No one in the history of of recorded human history ever died with Christ in the room. That's one thing that's really extraordinary about the Bible, is everyone who came in contact with him lived. Okay. If the mother equally shares in the transmission of sin, why this virgin birth? You would seem that I could not have any contact. And Christ did what? He walked among us. What's he walking in? What's he touching? Did he ever reach out and touch a human being? What are we all? We're all contaminated, right? So what is the reason for the infant process? Why is the virgin birth even necessary? Again, Adam was fully formed at creation without the infant process. Okay? Why not the second Adam also be fully formed without the infant process? Could God have done it that way? Hypothetically, yes. Omnisciently, no. This is the only way it could be done. Could God have an infant process that is a non-contaminated infant process? I asked that question almost jokingly a few weeks ago. Absolutely, he can. He also could have fully come, fully formed. But God chose otherwise. So that means this is the only way. So obviously, the virgin birth is critical, essential, and therefore infancy for the Holy One or the Holy Thing, also critical, essential. It must be necessary or it wouldn't have happened. God is omniscient and that makes it so. The no genetic inheritance view destroys the doctrine of the virgin birth. At least it renders it useless, superfluous, unnecessary. And it can't be unnecessary. 
Jesus Christ did something every Passover. What did he do? Hmm? Yeah, he went to Jerusalem, and what did he do in Jerusalem? Like every other Jew does. Every Passover, what did they do? Well, they do, but then they sit down together and what? They have the Passover meal, right? What do you do at a Passover meal? You eat. What do you eat? Bread. What else? Yeah, you eat a lot of, well, but especially at the time of Christ, what did he eat? Ate a lamb. Is the lamb contaminated? Molecules and atoms. Here we go again. Particles. Did Christ eat fish? Is the fish contaminated? What is the difference between Christ eating the fish after he is an adult versus when he is an infant? Is there any difference between the eating of the animals? From a molecular quantum mechanics, quantum physics perspective, there can't be any difference. So how does he avoid contamination? Is he growing in the womb without any nutrients, without any waste removal, completely separate, almost encapsulated, say, in a lead envelope? Is that what's happening in Mary? Doesn't make sense. I'm rendering the virgin birth to be useless. All I'm saying is that it's something that somehow points to something. And it has no value other than that. Why would God go through all this trouble of even doing it, much less identifying Mary and all of this. The eating aspect had no effect on the sinlessness or the perfection of the humanity of Christ. No contamination from eating. Therefore, eventually, I submit you will reach a place where contamination or sin transmission is not from eating. It is a blood issue. Okay, I have to hurry, Super Dave, so I'll get, I'll get back to you. In other words, sin, sin transmission does not is not caused by contact with sinners, by physically touching them. Because what did Christ do to everybody? Touched everybody. Walked in the muck of this world. He's constantly touching sin. He can't help but touch sin. Why? He's omnipresent God. So you do not get... How can I say this without freaking Anna out? You do not get sin transmission from a toilet seat. Okay? It's the best I could do for you. This contact isn't causing this. So what is causing it? What's causing it is the blood transfer. That's what's causing it. So the purpose of the virgin birth was not to stop physical touching, nutrient exchange. It was to stop the blood Exchange or the blood transfer. See, the virgin birth, the seed of the woman, the blood, the sacrificial system, the Davidic covenant and the promises of the Davidic covenant and, and others, they fit perfectly as they should, as they will, as they do. The miracle of is the elimination of the contamination from the man. The conception event is where the sin is transmitted, where the blood is ruined. The rest of those, by the way, are the same thing. You destroy one of those. If you destroy the virgin birth or if you bring anything to the virgin birth that renders it different in any way, then you affect the seed of the woman. He calls it calls himself the seed of the woman. She has a role. 
The Davidic promises won't work. The sacrificial system all of a sudden are, are, is suspect. The blood, uh, substitute, atonement, all of that, they're all the same. You can't get rid of one of them. You can't pull out the virgin birth and the others will stand. They all stand together. And again, the miracle is the elimination of the contamination of, from the man. The man is the, is the blood origin element, if you will. And Moses and Elijah knew that was true. I want you to just consider that for a second. We're talking about what? We're talking about the reproductive process, cell division, uh, the miracle of life, the forming of a human being. And Moses and Elijah knew that it was necessary for the man not to be part of this process and that the woman was still going to be utilized, but it would be a virgin birth. What's the obvious question? Moses and Elijah. What's this deal with Moses? What was Moses? He's educated in in the in Pharaoh University of Pharaohville. Yeah. How did Moses know this? How did Elijah know this? What level of understanding is it to under to to, to recognize? That something is wrong with the man. That we have got to eliminate him from this process. Otherwise, we have no true sacrifice. How did they get it wondrously, both Moses and Isaiah, wondrously, magnificently, flawlessly, exactly right? How can I explain Moses and Isaiah getting this perfect? We don't have it. I could take any teenager, bring them all up here. I could take all of you and have you. i got a couple of nurses in here. They better do good. But most of us could not explain this process. Now, how we learn it, by the way? What did Moses have? Electron microscope? How did Moses get it perfectly, scientifically, flawless, exactly right? How do I explain his ability to do that, him and Isaiah both? There would seem to be no possibility that this kind of biological knowledge at the microscopic level would be in the hands of Moses. But it was. Who taught him? He went to a lecture. He learned the process. Somebody zipped his head open and poured in an unbelievable amount of understanding. Who did it? God did it, didn't he? No one would dare suggest that both Isaiah and Moses could or should have figured out all the implications and consequences of the virgin birth and the impact it has on the Davidic promises by themselves. I'm just going to figure out. Let's see. I've been in, I've been in Egypt, but now I've been a shepherd for 40 years. And uh, I've been watching... I'm not been paying attention. I think I'll sit down and figure out why it's necessary for a virgin birth. And I'll get it perfectly right. And that'll fit, by the way, with the Davidic promises. They'll fit perfect. Have no position that attacks the totality that is the seed of the woman. Or the virgin birth, same thing. The blood atonement, the life that is in the blood, the communion ceremony. Do you realize that he's saying, drink this, this is my blood. It's uncontaminated. Well, by what process is it uncontaminated? The virgin birth seated the woman process. 
that Moses got exactly right. Isaiah got exactly right. He's just asking, how did they get it right enough to do what for you? Prove that somebody taught them. Now it's a matter to figure out who taught them. Oh, I know, aliens. More people are willing to believe, Richard Dawkins, the great evolutionary mind supposedly, is willing to believe that aliens did it. He'll take anything but the truth. You, you, you contaminate the virgin birth or you remove it, you remove the communion ceremony and the, uh, and the Levitical sacrificial system and the cleansing of sin and all the prophecies and the perfection and the innocence of Christ and the humanity of Christ. All of those are inter- interdependent. Okay? So I ask this all the time when I see this uh, no genetic inheritance view. Why is it necessary then for Mary to be a virgin? I just need a woman, right? If I'm going to have no contact, no transference or no transmission of sin, and I'm going to have an encapsulated little pod in there, why do I need a virgin? Why couldn't Mary be, you know, have 15 kids? Why does Christ, why does she have to be a virgin? She has to be a virgin. Why? God just say, well, that happenstance, just want to make the story more interesting, I'll go virgin. You have to answer that. If, if this is all supernatural, in other words, if, if Christ is, if his body is made outside, if material is used that is not previously existent, if that's the view that, that we're going to try to have here, why did he have to be an infant? What's the point of the infancy? What's the point of the virginity? What's the point of the infancy? And then what is the meaning of the seed of the woman or the purpose? What is the meaning of the naming the woman Eve, mother of the living? None of that makes sense unless it is the transference of the blood from the man. The position that there is no contamination, that there is no, nothing being utilized that is ever in existence for the body of Christ doesn't make sense. To me, I think it is destructive thinking. It ends up making the Bible to be senseless. And that's not something I'm willing to do. I have another one from Jennifer in Arizona. Uh, I won't read it, but uh, she is doing the same thing. Bless her heart. She's battling Romans 5.12. Um, and I'll do this next week. Um, but uh, somebody told her that given enough time, science is going to be able to remove sin. They are they are. Science is going to get rid of the evil gene. There's an evil gene, and we're going to find it. And we're going to remove it. We're going to do what? What are they saying they're going to be able to do? They're going to be able to turn everybody into what? Sinlessness. That's what they're doing. You say that you're going to pull evil out of humanity, then how much evil are you going to get? All of it? Some of it? Might as well get it all. By the way, how much will be left? Oops, there's a problem. But she's discussing with others a possibility that evil will be curable by chemistry or pharmaceuticals. That eventually, given enough time, science loves time, by the way, that uh, they're going to be able to remove the evil gene and remove the evil mechanism that are causing agents of evil. And what, of course, is most interesting to me is this concession they just made. What did they just make? What did they just say to you? They said, one, there's evil. Ooh, uh uh-oh. 
Where did it come from? Two, they say it's bad. One, I got it. Two, it's not good. We've got to get rid of it. What's that? They know good from evil, don't they? How do they know that? Are we re- willing to trust them? Do you want some scientist saying what's, what's good and what's evil about you and killing the evil? No, I don't want him in charge of that. Does he know? The very existence of evil must be explained, how it's defined. Then, they, then they, Once they say that they've defined evil and they've recognized that something's evil, then they've got to say, whoops, there's good. Where did the good come from? There's good and evil. What's the difference? What's the solution to evil? There you go. They're trying to find the solution to sin, aren't they? That's well, been done. The question isn't what is sin, it's or what what is the solution to sin? It's who is the solution to sin? It's the exact same question. So anyway, uh, I just hope that you uh, give me uh, you notice the irony. Christopher gave me an article. I'm going to end with this with a physics professor from the University of Minnesota, and he said the following. Let me read it to you. We are aware beings. He's a quantum physics guy, and he knows something is really weird here. We are aware beings, aware of our physical bodies. We have self-awareness. We know that we're, we're us, and we're aware of our physical bodies. And we're aware of what is outside of our physical bodies. And he says, human consciousness is indescribably complex. You cannot, we cannot describe human consciousness. Neuroscience, those who are going to give us the evil, uh, are going to fix the evil problem. He said, neuroscience is where physics was before the discovery of, of, of the quantum realm, of quantum mechanics. So neuroscience, he is saying, is exactly where the physicists were before somebody figured out the, the microscopic world and what's going on inside of it. Which means what about neuroscience? They are totally clueless. The chance that they're going to find the evil gene is completely, totally nonsense. In essence, he is saying that the solution to evil resides in human consciousness, which means it's where? It's in the mind. Okay? And the mind is different. The mind is not physical. And you don't, you're not going to fix, you're not going to fix a spiritual problem with a physical drug. Isn't going to happen. You might be able to stop the revealing of the mind through the physical system, but you're not stopping that mind very easy. That mind is fully capable of being evil without you knowing it. Just because it isn't being revealed to you doesn't mean it isn't happening in there. And there's a problem, and next week we'll get all into that.